Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Hey, it's Levy, and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about this interview that's coming up before we play it, which is that I left it exactly as it was when we recorded it in the room. Usually I go through and I try to make answers seem more fluid and make the response time seem quicker and make someone sound uh, as, as nice as it can be made for them to sound, given what happened. It's a courtesy. A lot of times these interviews are recorded with people and English is not their first language. It's something that, you know, levels the playing field a bit. But frankly, I didn't feel comfortable making myself feel smarter. And so I decided not to edit my own interview at all. I left it exactly untouched. Steve Wilde was nice enough to come in. He asked me some questions and I answered them as best as I could at the time. And you're going to hear exactly what happened. Levy Dalton on the show today from I'll Drink to That. How's it going, Levy? Hello, Steve. So you're working as a psalm in New York City, and you started thinking of an idea to have a podcast. How's that come about? You know, I was doing some video work, and I had this idea that it would be cool to interview other sommeliers, people I knew, people I'd gotten drunk with, people I'd spent a lot of time with, people, you know, many dinners, many tastings. And I knew they they were interesting people, and I knew that they had stories to tell, like really interesting occurrences, life stories, knowledge about wine, but just interesting people also. Because sometimes people who kind of make it through into becoming a wine person at a serious level are, are actually just really interesting people. And yet I saw when they would get published interviews that the published interviews weren't that interesting, that they would be kind of canned questions and that people were getting asked like, what was their favorite wine with chocolate or what wine for a desert island would they most enjoy or what was the wine that got them into wine? Like the same recycled questions that had been on a million sommelier questionnaires for 10 years or if not more. And it, these really interesting people were getting put through this filter of uninteresting questions. And I just thought it would be interesting if someone who really liked wine and cared about wine and understood the ramifications of what these people had done in their own lives or especially in their career, if they were to be asked questions by somebody like that. And so I thought it would be fun to sit down with people and do some some video work. It turns out video is really difficult in terms of editing and you know mise en scène, <laughs> you know everything. I mean, you know, one you have to say words like mise en scène. That's, but but 
it, it was tough. You know, a bird flies in the background and you're like, oh, cut, cut, cut. Or, you know, you can't get the the voice to sync with the talk or just all kind of the, the sun's bright. And, you know, and so there was all kinds of problems. The editing was taking forever and the actual interviews were very short. They'd be like five minutes or whatever, because that's the most that most people want to watch a video that's not like Jurassic Park level SGI, you know. And did you go like videos first? Because there's this element that I don't know what time was this, what year? Like I think um, this was about three years ago, so about 2012, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. late late 11, something. Yeah, maybe 11. Cool. I feel like maybe around that time it was like people in the restaurant industry saw their friends getting famous on TV through the Food Network, things like that. Was there that kind of element taking a video approach first, where it was like? There's no face for people talking about wine in a TV setting, and like Tom Colicchio is huge on TV now. And I think video is what most people think to do just naturally. They're like, "Oh, I want to record this. Let's do video." You know, whether it's like a home video, you know, or if it's something serious, video seems like the real thing to do. But the the thing with with video is that you're demanding someone's full time. You're saying, "Sit on the couch and watch this for however long it is," and in reality, people rarely give you that time, and it takes a ton of editing to get to that level where people would want to watch it for more than five minutes. So it wasn't a natural medium, and we weren't getting a lot of views, and it was a ton of work. And <clears throat> and then my friend uh, Matt Ducker, who worked at Bon Appetit at the time, we were out for Chinese noodles one night, and he's like, well, I like what you're doing, but it's the the format's wrong. You really should do a podcast. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, I didn't even know what a podcast was. And um, so that's how this got started. It was really Matt was like, look, I mean, this is the way. And then people would be regularly when we did the show for the first year or even still now, sometimes people are like, oh, you ever think about doing video? And you're like, no. Because as soon as you have to compete for someone's entire attention, that's a losing proposition. So unless you're going to spend millions of dollars to have high production quality and the amazing thing about a podcast is it doesn't cost much money it's just time and and effort um the basics of it are pretty pretty inexpensive so that made a lot of sense for what we were doing and the kind of content we have it's not karate moves it's not you know people flying through the sky it's not jetpacks we're talking about real people with their hands in the soil but you know it's for a specific audience and that makes so much sense in terms of on-demand podcast because people can, as they often do, prune a vineyard while they, while they listen, they can drive into work while they listen in the car, they can, you know, wash dishes while they listen. And that's, that's what happens in reality. People exercise, people jog. A lot of times I think like, Oh, I wonder if like my voice cadence is making like someone jog slower or faster right now. Like those kind of things. Cause in reality, that's how people engage with the show. And so what's it like to get a podcast off the ground? Is it harder than you thought, easier? And who's making those things happen early on? Uh, a lot of that was Matt. But if I knew what I knew now back then, I could have saved myself a lot of work. There's just a lot of uh, dumb little things that are part of it. Like the show is called I'll Drink to That. Um, so one of the words that's not in there is wine, right? But it's mostly about wine. Rarely we do like a beer show or something, but it's mostly about wine. There's no wine in the title. And so because of that, for the first, what, like year and a half or whatever, if you typed wine into iTunes search box, our show wasn't coming up. And it was only after I realized that that 
I changed the name in iTunes to I'll Drink to That Talking Wine with Levy Dalton just so people could find the show. Because we were missing a whole segment of people who were like, oh, I would love to listen to a wine podcast. I wonder what's there. And and simply because wine wasn't in the title, we weren't getting it. So things like that you learn just through trial and error and doing it wrong. You know, I, I mean, sometimes I think like I would love to just start a whole new show and do it right from the beginning and have everything. But, you know, there's a, now there's a ton of people who listen, actually. And so why would you put them through that? trouble of having to find a new show and stuff like that but and how did those people start listening at the beginning was it like you just had restaurant friends that you were getting in front of i know you come from like a a nightclub promotion background was that part of it were you like now it was mostly it was mostly guerrilla marketing on twitter like twitter a little bit of facebook but facebook didn't wasn't a big part of it for at the beginning at all so it was mostly twitter and uh and word of mouth and i think i just um knew enough people that I could call them up and get them on the show. Whereas I think that would have been more difficult for somebody coming out of the blue. I I think one, somebody wouldn't know who to call. And then two, the person might say no, but uh, you know, when you've been in the sommelier world for, you know, a long time, 15 years or whatever it was, you know, you know, people and they're more comfortable coming into talking to you. And you also have some common ground that you can talk about. So that was, that was how it got started. Does it start to take off right away? Is it like really slow moving at the beginning? Like who's listening at the very beginning? No, I think it was slow burn. I mean, I think it's like one of those long tail uh, fireworks, you know, like there's a fuse and it's like one of those Bugs Bunny cartoons where someone's lit the match on the fuse and you're just watching it go and someone's trying to stamp it out or whatever. And, you know, there's plenty of times on there that we could have quit. And then when you look on the graph, I mean, it just... Uh, things are cumulative and one day the numbers just got really big. So, I mean, what I think of is really big for what we do. You know, again, I never thought it was for everybody. And then, but now the numbers are more surprising than when you first start though, you're so happy that like anyone listened, you're like, Oh, got 10 listens. Awesome. You know what I mean? Like you're just so excited. But uh, yeah, I think that the fact it's enough people have to hear about it and enough people have to make it a habit of their life to listen. And then, then it happens. But it takes a while to get that out there. And um, I, people are like, oh, maybe I should do something. And I'm like, cool. Don't think about making any money or really having anyone realize you're doing anything for like a couple of years. Like, I'm so glad that we have that head start in a way. Because now podcasts are more popular than they were. And I'm just so glad that we figured some stuff out by this point. You know, even if sometimes it seems like it was so frustrating to, to figure it all out. Do you remember the first time somebody came up to you that you didn't know and was like, hey, I, I listened to your show. I yeah, you I mean, are. yeah. And it got, um, you know, people would be like, oh, I recognize your voice. Are you Levy Dalton? It would go like that. Not like I would have the name tag on. I would just be talking at a, a, a wine tag, like, hey, can I try that Eshazo or something? And someone would be like, excuse me, are you? Like that kind of. So that's that was a trip. Um, yeah, it it. It turns out that I'm in the world that is the demographic for the listenership. So a lot of it is people who go to tastings all the time and are professional buyers and are collectors that are into it. You know, people are into it. So I see those people, you know, I haven't yet like gone to the, to the bread store in my neighborhood and had the lady be like, I listen to your show. You know, it's, it's cause I'm in the world of the people who listen, which is people who are quite into wine, you know? Cool. And so even though it doesn't take off right away, like you're still plowing through interviews at the beginning. Like I think you cover 
100 in that first year. Does the show start to take its shape as you see it now, like around then? Is it like 50, 100 shows in? Like what changes through that first set of interviews, like say under year one? I don't know. I think there are definite milestones that are like every 50 or something like that, where um, you're kind of like, oh, I sort of know what I'm doing now. And you kind of feel that way more and more each time, each kind of block of a few you've done. It's really like that thing where, you know, Malcolm Gladwell said, like, it takes 10,000 hours to become a good rock star or whatever. You have to put in the time to figure out what you're doing. And I don't know that I'm necessarily great at it now, but I uh, did evolve a lot in, in one way or another. And if it's good, it's good. I mean, it's what it is. But and so what are some of those evolutions? What do you do differently now? Well, we interview more winemakers now. Originally, when we started, it was mostly sommiers, which was fine, um, but it was a certain kind of interview. And I found that I was having a lot of questions in my own mind that were the kind of questions and discussions that you really have with winemakers. And it's a different situation with winemakers because they're so much closer to it all and they see it so much before we do. And also, they're often a lot more serious about there's a reason that the wine stays that way. There's a, they made certain choices and sometimes they're able to look at those choices from a distance and be like, this is why we use it. And sometimes they're so close to it that they can't and you have to kind of prod it out of them as to like, Oh, so why do you do the, you know, certain kind of maceration or why do you use the carbon dioxide? Cause for them, that's just like what they do. So they don't even think about it. So it's a different kind of interview, but a lot of my mind was like, in moving in that direction, like those are the answers that I was looking for, those kind of questions. So I think by the time you get to 100, you start to see more winemakers and also winemakers from foreign countries. That was not originally part of the show was, you know, to have people in from Italy and ask them questions and stuff. And that's developed more and more where now there have been shows in translation and stuff. That was never part of the show originally. So I'd, I'd say if you look at the show, what's really happened is that the ambition of the show has cranked up a lot over the period of time that it's been on. Like, oh, well, this is possible. We could get, you know, X person on the show. Whereas I think when I first started, I was like, oh, well, we're going to interview people I get along really well with, people I've known for years, friends, that kind of thing. It, it grew beyond the scale of that in terms of who's on the show. I don't think that the the stuff around the interview, like, you know, the, the type of mics or the, the non-existent intro music or that kind of thing hasn't changed. But the ambition of what the kind of person that we have on the show, I, I think there's been some change, yeah. Cool. And those are positives that I think you've kind of evolved into and things you've been able to like expound upon more, things that are better for the show. But what are some of the things that were parts of it you thought would be integral that you've kind of jettisoned that you're over? Um. I mean, not so much. I'm not. So, I'm really happy with a lot of what we've done. I think that you have to realize that um, a sommelier interview is a certain kind of interview because a lot of times they're not a personal brand. Whereas I feel winemakers are by definition a personal brand, and and importers often are too. And so for them to take a stance on an issue is part of what they do. For them to say, "Oh, we don't use new oak." is part of what they do or for the importer to say we do traditional wines from spain or whatever it is whatever the thing is that's part of their branding i think sommiers are often really afraid to get in in that kind of brand they're afraid to be put into a box and so they'll often kind of skirt around that but um that also makes it harder for them to express who they are almost 
So a lot of times you're dealing with that when you're dealing with the Somia interview. I, I think one of the things I realized over time was that there were different kinds of interviews based on what their job was. And that certain people would be more expressive of different kinds of traits. You know, sommiers can tell you a lot more about trends in the market and what's selling and uh, what's interesting to them now, that kind of thing, uh, which gives you insight just as a whole. Of course, there are certain people who are more knowledgeable or more willing to say who they are. And I think some of that has to do with whether they're a partner in the restaurant or not. You know, I think sommiers coming up are afraid that they're going to offend by expressing too much who they are, which is, it's, um, it's something that happens, whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but it happens. And how much does environment affect the show or how much has it? So I, I remember, I think you used to say like, bring a bottle of wine, we'll drink it while we're recording. Is that still something that you do? Is that still something that's a part of it? Or is that something you're... It just, when someone brought a bottle of wine early on, it felt like that was a good vibe that resulted from that. And so for a while, I was like, hey, bring a bottle of wine. But then I felt like I was asking for something from the guests. And, and I had one or two guests respond in a way of like, oh, you know. And uh, so I stopped doing that. And also, I, a lot of people are like, hey, get drunk and do a show. I'm not there to embarrass the person. I'm not there to make them say things that they don't feel comfortable saying. That's not the point of the show. Uh, we're just trying to get who a person is on tape. And it, try to be. I found that trying to be... Um, secret about that desire is is not the right way to do it you don't you don't um coerce people into being who they are you be upfront with them and explain who you are and then they explain who they are that's what i found so um also it's just boring hearing people um, swirl and spit wine on on radio i don't know maybe in video that's more interesting but actually hearing somebody like blow air over liquid in their mouth on radio is super boring yeah, it's just like an extra separation from the listener too, where it's like, hey, we're drinking this wine somewhere that you're not. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I guess it could be interesting if you did it right, but I that wasn't the interesting part to me. Um, so we did it, and uh, that was fine for a while. And there are parts of it that you're like, oh, I can see why that person would choose to bring that wine. That's part of their personality, and I don't, um, I don't, you know, I don't regret that we did it, but at the same time, it just. It wasn't a part of what I wanted to really do. Also, I became, <clears throat> I'd say something that happened over time is that I became more comfortable figuring out a significant amount of questions that I had for somebody. In other words, I think I became more involved with them in the sense that I would really be more empathetic and really think about them. And then thus more questions would occur in my own mind. Whereas I think when I first started the show, it wasn't always a given that I was going to have an hour's worth of questions. And it didn't have to be an hour, but sometimes I found it was difficult. And I found like, oh, well, let's bring out the prop of the wine and let's talk about the wine for a little bit. Could help me get over that and we could do an hour of content, which again, isn't necessary, but you know, it's, it's not a bad goal, I guess, to set a time to give you some reference point of you know, what you'd like to achieve. But after a while, I found that I didn't need that crutch. I could just talk to someone for an hour. And how much is Matt involved in those first 50 episodes as far as that evolution, as far as the content, you know, kind of stylistic points of the show? Is that something you guys work together on as a team or is it Levy and then Matt's kind of helping out? Oh, no, Matt was huge. I mean, I can't, can't thank him enough. I mean, it's been a while since we talked. So he's super busy now and um, it just got to the point where the show was something that he could do and to the detriment of his own successful career. Like he was, a lot was really happening for him and a lot is really happening for him. 
but he was huge in terms of being a coach and being in terms of all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I have to be honest with you. I don't know how many people listen to the first 50 episodes anymore. Like that to me almost feels like a, a different life. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people start with more current episodes and maybe they listen to the first one. They go back and listen to the first one or a couple that maybe they know that person. But usually people work their way current to, to back or at least that's what the numbers say. So I don't know, you know, I don't even know how many people really are, can can even relate to those that era. Maybe a few people who've been with the show forever, but um, but no, Matt was huge. Matt Matt made so much happen in terms of my own realization of a process. Uh, you know, I I have no journalistic background. I didn't go to school for it. I never did any broadcast. I wasn't in the AV club. I didn't do you know college radio. None of that. So I mean. To me, it was a gut thing to figure out. And you know what? It turns out that when people have experience with those subjects, and it's not just a gut thing, that they can give you really credible advice. And he did that many, many times. And he really allowed a, lo a lot of what happened to happen. You know. And then what happens to the show when Matt leaves? So Matt has a busy career. He's got other things to get to. What happens to Aldrin to that at that point? Um. You know, Matt was kind of like, this is this is really your show and you should do it on your own. I think he kind of saw that there was a natural evolution where um, maybe it would be better if I were just alone in the room with the person. We were getting some pretty good interviews when that happened. There were some times that Matt couldn't come uh, because of his own scheduling and we did some interviews uh, with people and it would just be me and the person and sometimes that was a warmer interview. So I think... And where was that? That's like in a sound stage? Is it? No, just in my house. Just, you know, I think that was a big change too. Like having people over the home really set a different tone for the, for the show. Um, and I, I wouldn't uh, change that. You know, sometimes we go on the road and record somewhere else, but I, there's no substitute for one looking someone in the eye while you ask them a question and being right there in the same space. I don't understand telephone interviews because you're totally in a different space than them. I mean, it's fine if you have a couple quick questions about a subject, but if you actually want to get into their life and you're in a different physical space than them, I don't know how you can really set up that relationship of trust. Um, because part of it is you're saying, yeah, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm also going to listen to your answer. And that's something you can really only do in person. And then when you have someone to your house, you're also saying, that part where I'm going to ask you a question, well, before that, I'm going to show you who I am. You're going to see all my stuff. You're going to come in. You know, I'm going to – the books, the small space, the cramped, whatever. This is me. I'm giving it – you know, I'm, I'm – all, all my cards are facing you. So this is what I've got. And I think that that sets up a, a relationship where you can start to ask someone about their family or what really happened to them. Otherwise, who are you to do that, you know? when does that start happening? So, I mean, Fourier was in my house and that was early. Um, but that was a, more of a scheduling thing. Originally, I felt much more comfortable doing it in a neutral location. A, a lot of the first episodes were recorded at a restaurant that I used to work at, for instance. But then, you know, you think that there's a quiet room in a restaurant. And really, there's no such thing as a quiet room in a restaurant. In, in fact, uh, somewhere there's always going to be someone hammering a chicken or pounding veal or you know, moving some cart through the hall or something like that. So there's always background noise in a restaurant. That's part of why people like restaurants because there's things happening. But in reality, it's not a good platform for recording, even though you'd think like, oh, we want to be in the center of things, you know, that kind of thing. And then we did it um, 
in Times Square for a while. And that was great, but it had a little bit of a job interview feel to it. I think, you know, guests had to come in and go through security and then they had some guy asking him questions in a boardroom and it was kind of like, it was like, you know, you got more formal responses. And it turns out that when you change the venue, you get a warmer interview. It is at least what I believe to be true, you know. So I imagine there's a lot of really technical stuff that goes into just producing anything, but especially radio, especially when there's a lot of audio involved. After Matt leaves, who's taking care of that? Who's on the production end? Um, me the whole time. I mean, for better or for worse. There have been times where people complained about the the value, uh, production values of the show, and I don't blame them. You know, I'm no expert. I just try to get it up as best as I can. It's, you know, one of the things about offering a show for free that's a very specific um, subject matter in terms of, yeah, we're really going to go into this wine thing for people who really want to go into it is that part of the economics of that is let's keep this pretty basic on the production side. And otherwise, you know, that's that's why magazines close, right? It's because they're too narrow of a topic and they have too much overhead. And my thought was always, let's keep this simple on the overhead part so that we can have the freedom to do what I think would be cool to do. And that's really been the, the, the key to success. I think when people start up a show, I think they're overambitious a lot of times in terms of we're going to have all these jazzy segments and we're going to do all this and we're going to put all this time in it and maybe it'll be on video. Maybe we'll do costumes and you know, they get four episodes in and then you're like, it disappears one day. And the reason that that happens is because you can't sustain that. That's not sustainable. Not at a level where you're just doing it on the side in your spare time. You know, if you have a production company, sure. Yeah, let's do it. If you have a staff, but if you don't have a staff, don't try to do that. And that's been the key to this show lasting three years. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not what you do the first five episodes. It's what you do, you know, for the first five years, you know. And I think that people want to make a great show and so that they make it overly complex and then they have trouble meeting that requirement week after week after week. We often, most of the time we've done two episodes a week. If we made it really complex, we wouldn't be able to. I can't you know, come up with new theme music every time. It's just not part of having a free show on this topic. Yes, if we wanted to dumb it down and make it applicable to millions of people, then sure. But that's never been the, the goal. That's really interesting to me because I think the the part of the show, you know, the, the core of it, the interview maybe doesn't seem so hyper-produced, but the warm-up parts seem really, really polished and really well-produced. Like something that I think could be like, an intro to Splendid Table and NPR and things like that. So let's talk about Aaron. So at some point, Aaron joins the show. How does that come about? She came for an interview because she was a sommelier at a restaurant. And I sat and talked with her in that interview, which, you know, we've released that interview. And the whole time, I'm, I was just thinking to myself, how can I spend more professional time with this person? How can I do some some sort of project with this person? And by the end of it, I knew I wanted her to be involved somewhere with the show. And also it was a, it was a, exactly at that point of time where Matt wanted to do less uh, because of his own career. And it just made a lot of sense. And so I asked her and she has been nothing but enthusiastic and perfect since the beginning. And um, I just, I can't thank her enough. Really. She's an amazing person though. I mean, Aaron can just do that kind of 
she can just bring that intensity to any moment. You know, I've traveled with her around the world on different wine trips and she can just uh, go into amazing song during lunch, you know, and I'm just not that kind of person. You know, my thing is to kind of be like, Oh, I wonder why it's like that is, is where my mind is often, you know, it's kind of almost like a detective game. of Well, why? I wonder why it tastes like that. Or I wonder why they decided to do that. That's more my thing. But Erin can do like show tunes and uh, and really well. And she can do it at the drop of a hat. And she's an amazing person. And actually, it's not just that she brings a lot of energy, which I think a lot of people do. What she also does is she, her intellect is so bright that she can tackle a subject like the wines of Santa Barbara or the wines of Gayak in an angle that really... She just looks at the source material and reads about the history of the place and then comes up with a, a, a key thread to that topic that I think a lot of people would struggle to find over years of thought. She's actually just an extraordinarily bright person, and I, I can't thank her enough for everything she's done for the show. And I guess if I have one regret about the show, it's that I think people don't respect those warm-ups enough, actually. I think they're really good, and I'm always sad and People are like, Levy, great show, love the interview. And then there, there's no mention of the fact that, you know, this person did really amazing work in the beginning. And maybe that's because it's three minutes or five minutes. Or maybe just because it's a little bit of a different tone, you know, because I think that she does, she is more vivacious and it is more produced because Aaron had a lot of sound uh, editing background and she knew how to do that stuff from the beginning. And I never had to show her anything. In fact, I couldn't have. And she knew how to do all that. And so she did it and that she loves doing it and she does a great job at it. And she's done piece after piece after piece that I've thought, boy, that's really amazing. Just for me, I think. Yeah, the amount of information that's in those is so dense and she approaches it in such a way that's really universally approachable, I think. You know, like she just has a handle on explaining something either geologically astronomically, you know, viticulturally in a way that's just that really rare, like once in a lifetime, like I can talk about this at a really deep level and my grandmother can understand it and a master song can get something from it. And I think that's really special. Is that, is there an idea to that that's, you know, really educational about the show? Is there something that you give her to, to put together on those pieces that ties into what you're doing on the interview sense? I give her almost nothing. And it's only recently that I even we even got it together enough to say like, Oh, this is what the interview topic is going to be like on Tuesday. So I'd say for so the, like fir- how fast is she turning those around? It seems like, I don't know how weeks much of work. she spends, but it, you know, I, I don't know. But in terms of what sh- she used to just do whatever she wanted. And then now she at least knows what the topic is going to be on Tuesday coming up a week or two weeks from now. And so that's why now there's some sync between what she tends to talk about and what the interview tends to be. Whereas before there didn't, there didn't used to be that. So that was something that we achieved. And I think it made it easier for her because after you run through everything you're interested in for a couple of years, then if someone says, well, what about this topic? It, it focuses you in on that topic. So you don't have to think of a fresh new idea every time. Cause that's actually the hard part is like, what would be an interesting idea? You know, that's the hard part. Whereas if, if you're like Gayak, you can go do the research on Gayak and then come up with a, an interesting thing on that. So, you know, that whole couple hours that you spent, like, what should I do? You don't have to do anymore. So I think that saved her some time. But she's, I can't stress enough that she's like actually a special person. Like her, it's not 
just that it's educational as well. It's also vivacious and she can do Snoop Dogg jokes and she can do show tunes and she can, you know, do acapella and she's, she's an incredible person. Like, and that was obvious to me from the beginning. And I'm just so happy that we've been able to be a platform for that. Cause you know, previously this is a person who worked the floor and had a blog, but wasn't reaching many people. And I think, you know, the audience for the show is not small and, she reaches those people and I, I, I'm very happy about that. Awesome. So who in general is listening to the show? I mean, I don't know because I don't, I don't, you know, I don't spy on the, the numbers or whatever. Um, but my, from anecdotal evidence, it's people who are really into wine, usually who are pro- either professional level buyers or people who want to be professional level buyers or people who just buy a lot on their own. I think there's, a lot of private collectors who are super into wine almost at a sommelier level now, if not more, actually. Sometimes I know certain private collectors that are m- much smarter than you know, a lot of sommeliers in terms of the interest and the level of travel that they've done to the regions and how much they know about certain producers. Um, those, it's the people who want to know more. It was never meant to be the show for people who are thinking about trying a bottle of wine. That, there's so much competition for that show. We're not trying to convince people that wine is good. If you haven't figured that out, this is not the show for you. You know, it, it was for people who really wanted to take it to another spot. I think all the time people complain that there's not enough good wine content out there. And you're like, well, let's make some, you know. And not everything has to be basic level. And I understand why people want basic level. But I also think there's a huge amounts of basic level information out there. There's a ton of books. There's ton of classes now it's not 1980 there's a lot for that person that's thinking about maybe throwing a cocktail party or a wine party or you know thinking about how to order at a restaurant those those things have been covered or are covered and and i feel like there's a new opportunity for that almost every week somebody comes up with a new one of those because everyone wants to make the big dollar move everyone wants the million dollar seller you know oh you know if we can convince all the people who don't drink wine to drink wine by reading my book, then we'll sell all these copies. But that was never this show. This show was people who already knew what they wanted. And it's by definition, fewer people. But the thing about that is there are people who, um, they're, they're buying wine. They're not just occasionally buying a bottle, maybe every, every month or something like that. They're actively buying wine. So for me, it's a more interesting market segment, let alone a more interesting person to talk to in terms of what kind of conversation we can have about wine. So you're, in your mind, this, this show would change dramatically if, say, NPR came to you and was like, okay, here's a popular podcast. We want this to be a part of what we do. Like the interest level would be different. The amount of information you could cover would be different. I don't know. I like NPR. I, I don't know. I mean, if NPR is listening, please come contact me. We'll figure it out. But I, I you know. Right now, I'm pretty happy with what we do. I, I think we put interesting content out there, and I listen to the interviews, and I like them. So if other people do too, then that's very satisfying. Um, you know, I, as I said, it, it was never designed to be for everyone, and it's not. And I think understanding that made it more relevant to a certain group of people. And those, that group of people actually is a significant market for wine because it's – the, the wine market that I live in isn't a wine market that's determined by the person who goes to the Safeway and grabs a bottle of wine instead of a bottle of Coke. It's a market where people are taking, you know, 50 cases of wine at, 
every week at their restaurant. And, and that's a very different market. But why would you want to miss that market? Because you dumbed it down too much. Like, why would you not want to talk to millions of dollars in revenue, if not more? Why would you want to not talk to that person? I don't get it, you know? So as far as people that listen to the show go, um, I know a lot of the former guests have been really loyal listeners and big supporters of yours. And I know they're also friends of yours a lot of the time or, you know, become friends after the show. Um, and then I also get a, a sense that knowing you personally myself, that when the show comes up kind of, you know, outside of recording, that a lot of times you'll deflect questions that come to you about the show, not like in a reticent way, but more in like, ah, it's no big deal. Let's talk about something else kind of thing. So um, I took the last couple of weeks and reached out to a, a bunch of people who had been on the show before with the mindset that I thought it could be cool to have, you know, a more official platform for them to, to reach out and ask something um, that had maybe been on their minds about the show. Um, so I have a list that we can read through and kind of talk uh, through some questions from some, some really interesting people. I'll, I'll say that, you know, a lot of the submissions were um, rude. They're like, really, fuck that guy. <laughs> like, when are you calling it quits? Oh yeah, <laughs> really? Interesting. <laughs> that was the number one question. It was like, "That's almost are too you bad." Done? That's kind of too bad. Because <laughs> I think if you listen to the show, it's obvious that there's so much more room to cover. I think for real for me, but I mean, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. So you know, really, I think a lot of outpouring of you know things that I can't share with you here, but I'll definitely send on to you after we're done talking. But a lot of love, a lot of esteem, a lot of respect. Um, so I'll read through them. I want to. Uh, Stephen Bitterolf and Grant Reynolds are really instrumental in connecting me to a lot of people that I didn't know personally in the wine world to get these together. And I'll say, uh, you know, uh, I'll try to cover as much of these as possible. So I'll apologize to anybody I don't get to. And uh, also if I butcher their question, apologies in advance. Um, but we'll start first question from Alice Firing, who says, knowing your love for working the floor, I'm wondering what the transition from floor to headset was like for you and the hardest lesson to learn. I mean, the hardest problem for me is that people didn't take me seriously doing this. That people are like, oh, when are you going to get back on the floor or something? I, I always found that annoying. I, I think that we do a good job. And I think that people have career evolutions, you know. And I think it's too bad that people are like, oh, well, that guy does this. So I always expect them to do that. I almost feel like that's so not not nice in a way. Like, uh, I don't know. I uh, Yeah, uh, I don't know. I I think a, a lot of times when people don't listen to the show, they're like, oh, when are you going to be a sommelier again? Like, when are you going to do something relevant again? I, I Sometimes I, I get a little offensive. I get I get a little offended by that. Gotcha. I think a lot of people who knew you through the restaurant world had a sense that you were a really good sommelier, you know, and that you had a really particular way about you. And um, Richard Betts had a question that was more... Do you miss it? You know, do you miss being on the floor? Of course you miss things, but you also evolve, you know? I don't know. I get that. Actually, that's the number one question I get in person. But of course you miss things, you know? But I I don't know. I mean, am I excited that I got to have Aubert Duvalet into my house? Of, of course. I mean, you're developing different relationships. And the thing that I realized is that increasingly I was becoming one of many, many, many sommeliers. When I started my career as a sommelier, there were literally not many. There were very few. And you were one of a handful. And now I think these winemakers come to town and they're like, okay, they're led around to the famous restaurant. And they're like, this is a sommelier. And then, 
you know, two years later you see them again and they have no idea who you are because they're just on the dog and pony show of meeting all of these sommiers. But, you know, I'll be really honest with you. When someone comes to your house and you sit down with them and you make them tea and you talk to them about your life or their life for an hour, they never forget you. You now have a real connection. And those are the connections that I used to make as a sommelier that are harder to make now because there's so many sommeliers. And I found that I was, you know, a tall, skinny white guy and I was getting mistaken for other tall, skinny white guys and I wasn't being remembered. And that to me, that to me meant that I wasn't getting through in a way. If, if, if you really care about and are an ambassador for someone's product and they have no idea you exist, that's an odd feeling. And you know, you should try to bridge that gap. I think if you're going to be an ambassador for something, one of the key things you need to do is develop a relationship with that thing or that person. That's, that's how you can be really real about it. And if, if it turns out that they're in a different culture and a different time zone and a different continent, figure out a way to do it. Otherwise you're never going to really understand what you're selling anyway. So I really like having Richard in there as a question because to me, one of the big like first public moments for the show, and I might be wrong about this, but was when you interviewed Richard after he had his, you know, famous uh, orange wine article, you did a two-parter with him. And to me, it seemed like maybe the first time I'd noticed, you know, I knew of the show and listened to the show regularly, but that was the first time maybe I saw it in like a wider audience, you know, see it covered in a way that was different because of the content outside of just who was on the show, but more about the content and the approach to the interview. What have been some of the other like big public moments for you for the show? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what resonates with other people. I can tell you what were big for me. I mean, I can tell you that everyone has been important though. I can really like I've learned a lot from every time. I you know, in terms of what other people like, I mean, that's up to them. I don't know. A lot of times that when I think people pick an episode that they like, it often says more about them than the interview, I think. A lot of times when people tell me it's what's their favorite interview, it's like they're telling me their favorite wine. There's something that is about them that that they're expressing at the same time. So, was they tell you about me that my favorite interview was the one that I was on? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, are there other rightly ways? so, rightly so? <laughs> are there other ways that the show has kind of informed your interactions with people that you didn't yeah. see coming? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, empathy in general, much more listening, much more actual listening. Um. um you know, I, I think that for the, in the beginning, I didn't necessarily realize that I was, I needed to be a coach for people, which was a realization that has never left once it's set in. You know, originally it was like, I thought that people were going to come in and I could ask them questions and they could just uh, do it off the top of their head and it would be really interesting. And, and there are people who can do that, but there's not so many people who can do that. That's a limited subset of people. And Really what I learned is that my job was to get this amazing person that I believed in to express why they are amazing publicly. That was the goal. And so there's all kinds of little things that play into that. But you realize that what you really are is a coach to get this thing out there into the world that you can see that maybe other people can see but isn't isn't necessarily just totally transparent, you know, and some of it had to do with just being real with people and it's challenging to be real. You know, it's not the easiest thing. It's not something you're trained to do in real life, actually to be real, you know, or at least not in my life. 
So, yeah, I mean, I learned to be more present with people. And that's carried through. I mean, the show changed my life in many ways. And that, that's carried through a lot of the rest of, of me, you know, I think. I have a question from Bobby Stuckey here. So Bobby says, Levy, I've told you this before, but I love your interview process. And when I think of how you've become really good at it as you have, I wonder, who do you look to for interview inspiration? Others in the wine industry or in film, music, or in different mediums entirely? It's clear that you pay attention to others in the format. And who is that? I mean, there are, there were interviews that I thought were really interesting. And then there have been people who have said, you know, you remind me of this person. And I found that interesting. But um, I don't know that it's so clear cut as that. Because what I found a lot of times is that I would say, listen to Mark Marin, who I think is an amazing interview. And then that would kind of like affect my style and make me like a cheesy pastiche of Mark Marin. And I would almost like tank an interview, you know, because eventually you have to find your own voice, you know, and it's, it, I think it's kind of like a basketball coach, you know, you have to understand the strength of your team and what kind of offense and defense they can play. And if you need to trade players or something to get to the offense or defense that you want to play, then you can do that. But you have to understand what people can do. Are, is this a good three pointer? Is this guy good inside? You know, can this guy hustle to get back on D whatever it is, there are attributes that people have. And then there are sorts of strategies that people have. But you can't mix the two almost. You know, you can't make a guy who's really good on D be great on offense just because that's what you have as a plan. And what I found was that I don't know what I found, but I found that when I tried to be somebody else, it wasn't always great. Um, but there are certainly people that were inspirations. I think Studs Turkle was an inspiration. The fact that he would go out and interview the everyman and just try to get their their point of view on what was happening in the world. And he valued that as like something that we should listen to people. This is a democracy. Let's do that. You know, let's act like it. Um, that was, that was inspirational. I think that, uh, I think that Roy Firestone was big. Actually, he was an old sports broadcaster on like ESPN and he used to do interviews with, um, with sports guys. And I think I talked about this once in the Abe interview that I did. Um, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but I, I kept thinking about him a lot and I couldn't figure out why. And then I went back and watched one of his interviews and I realized, you know, that his style was kind of something that had affected me as, as what I thought an interview should be. Um, he regularly gets people to cry in his interviews though. And there's not a lot of crying in the wine business, but <laughs> you haven't cracked that one yet. I mean, one time, yeah, but it's, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is try to make someone cry. I think that that's, that's a bad formula because you're purposely trying to be manipulative. And again, I think the most important thing is to be real with somebody. So, so you mentioned the concern about being somebody that you're not in an interview and how that comes across. Is there also the concern about being too much of yourself and like not fitting into the radio format? Like knowing you um, outside of the, the interview process, like say in a wine tasting, like you're a big personality a lot of times like you'll you'll be daring about making a joke in a crowd and that's not an easy thing to do like you know has have you changed your approach to humor through the the first podcast to now is you know you can see where the humor makes it easier for someone else to talk and where it doesn't and i think i try to read that and use it accordingly because i think it's so easy for my personality to overstep and 
and shut someone else down. And, and that's the opposite of what I want in one of these. So if we meet in person and I overstep and shut you down, maybe I'm not so sorry because I think I'm being really hilarious. But on this, the point is to get the person on the tape. And if that's not happening, then it's an ego trip on my part. And that's not what we came for. And it's not what I expect our listeners to come for either. It's, um, you know, personalities are like, are like liquid. If you, if you, you know, drop it on a surface, it expands, you know, but if it goes over the edge, then it starts to fall, you know, and starts to drip on things and stuff like that. So, you know, you have to be careful that the personality that you have is not getting in the way of someone else expressing themselves. And there have been interviews that were funnier interviews because that's how I could get the person to be more of who they were by making them relax. You know, I think Hardy was a lot like that. You know, we have a similar sense of humor or at least we laugh at each other's jokes so much. And so putting that as part of the interview really helps him be who he is. But there are plenty of times where that's not the case. And then you got to remember where to put it. The other thing that um, is really true and became more true over time is that when you're dealing with people who English is a second language for them, if you're telling a lot of jokes, you're losing them. And that's the one thing you don't want to do is lose the person that you're talking to. So it's, 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 a, it's a factor of trying to get the interview that we have with the people that we're asking to be on the show that sometimes are not always funny. So I think restaurants will conscient, uh, consciously try to avoid questions that are evocative of bad restaurants, you know, like it'll be like, or even just statements, you know, like you'll tell a server to stop announcing their name to a table, like my name's Carl and I'll be your server today, you know? So those are things that are evocative of bad restaurants. When I think of your interview style, I also think that you try to avoid some of those really bad interview questions, things that remind you of bad wine interviews. Like you never seem to, to directly ask like, how'd you get the wine bug? And you get there a little bit more organically. Are there other kind of interview pitfalls that you're conscientiously trying to avoid? Huh, I don't know. Um, I just don't want to, I guess one of the things that's key for me is that it doesn't become a contest about who knows more about wine or who's drunk more. I think those can very easily happen or, um, and so I think as long as you keep it as genuine inquiry, then it almost never happens. But as soon as you're like, oh, once I had the 1965, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, there, there have been plenty of times where I've talked to a guest and they're talking about a subject that I know a lot about or have ex- experienced firsthand in the place or have worked with the wines in this country. And I think as long as that is informing my questions, we're good. But the moment that it becomes me being like, well, I know all about, you know, X, Y, Z, I think you really change the tone of the interview. And I think it's so easy to do in the wine world um, where part of um, showing you that you're accomplished can also be read as bragging. And so I think I consciously, there have definitely been moments where people were talking about something that this is a subject I know a lot about or contributed to the knowledge of, but I've held that back because... I wanted them to be able to express what they thought about it. That's why I asked them to come, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a hallmark of, of a great interviewer, frankly, is like being able to let that information unfold for the listener 
rather than really pushing it in the direction you want it to go. Um, I mean, sometimes you wish somebody would go in a different direction, you know, like to use Hardy's example again, Hardy Wallace, you know, he talked specifically about why he was moving away from orange wines and he felt they were, um, <clears throat> that they were distorting uh, the terroir and the real of the wine. And I really disagree with that statement, but I didn't say that at the time because that's what he thought. And it's important to get the record of what he thought and why on the tape, as long as someone's expressing to you what they actually think, and then they're able to explain to you why they think that that's, that's what's fair to ask them, you know? But then when I went and worked harvest with them, one time that subject came up and I said, you know, I know you think that, but that's not what I think. Here's what I think. And I don't think it distorts terroir. I think it, there's no reason why we should expect that red wines that are macerated with the skins can express terroir, but we don't think that the white grapes that are macerated with the skins can. It's, it's a fundamental, logical, uh, non sequitur. People say it all the time. It doesn't make it true that they say it, but I'll, I'll let them say it if that's what they think. So Chiara de Ulis Pepe has a, a question that's along those lines, and maybe you can think of another example, but she says, you let the producers talk freely without interruptions about what they consider most important for their philosophies and wine theories, and you listen. And at the same time, we all know that you have a serious amount of wine knowledge and strong opinions. So what's going through your head when you don't agree with what a producer is saying? And she adds on a little note that she's sure it happens all the time, knowing you. I mean, I, um, I, you know, I think my, my job as an interview is to keep them honest. If they're using too many generalizations, I want to say, well, what do you mean by that? If they're, you know, if they're saying it's great or it's the best or it's, you know, we're very traditional or it's very unique. Tell me what, tell me what that means. You know, um, I don't make wine. So however people want to make it, I'm not comp competing with that. But I, I will say that I think of the people who come on the show as I, I, I pick them in the same. I will say that I pick people for the show in the same way that a sommelier would pick wines for a wine list. So if I really like the wine, I'll have the person on the show. And usually I find that then I really like what the person has to say too. I, I think there's reasons why wines taste a certain way. And a lot of times people have had to make very strong choices to get it to taste the way it has over generations sometimes. So if I'm into the taste of the wine, almost always I'm into the interview. I'm, I may, I mean, uh, I think everyone has the experience where your relationship to what you think about wine changes over the time that you are in the wine business. You know, I'm open to changing my opinion about things, but I want to know why. But I, I think that um, as long as you're interviewing people who you like the wines, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm totally open to what they have to say, you know, because I believe in them in the first place. Otherwise they wouldn't be here. I, you know, it's, it worked out. That's why I have no problem selling the wines through crush because I believe in the, wines otherwise it wouldn't even be on the show for me it's a recommendation from the beginning um so and given how much you know about wine how often are you legitimately surprised by something a guest says and can you think of any times that you've had oh, a I mean, it's a revelation lot. yeah i mean tegan uh, pascalak always gives me a hard time um because i'll say uh what is it that i say because i'll say uh 
Oh, is that true? That. Is that true? Yeah. Is that true? And right. oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and that that's me saying that's a re- that's me verbally recognizing that I didn't know that. That's that's what I'm saying. Is that's that was a surprise to me. If I say is that true, I mean, I, oh really? Like you know, that's that was a surprising thing. Then I don't know. So I think if you say, oh okay, then you did know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, and I'm not averse to asking questions where I know the answer because. I think that you have to do that to lead someone through their story. You know, if I'm aware that this this person's father did such and such, kept the vines in, that's why they're old today. I think that's an important part of what to say on the show. Otherwise, the person listening may not. You can't expect that the person listening is going to know and they need to be brought through to why things taste like they are. You know. And so as far as that kind of storytelling goes, Shelley Lindgren has a great question. Um, she says... Uh, your style really helps demystify and bring a wine label to life through a story. Can you tell us about the storytelling of wine? What is it that you're doing differently than other interviewers to connect people to wine so well? Well, I don't know. I mean, you're just trying to um, get people to talk about what they're enthusiastic about or what they've made real choices about. And I think that you, when you can hear someone's voice tone and they're excited or they're being real with you, that's all you need to know. So I think that's the big advantage of a podcast over text. And I think people are often like, oh, podcast, who's got time for that? Who wants to listen to that? You know, I'd much rather read this 20,000 word article. Well, I don't know that I would because I can tell so much by how someone just says I can tell so much. You know, it's there's a uh, you're touching more closely that person's personality and I think everyone, the real truth about it is people like to listen to a show where there's a relationship between the person asking the questions and the person answering them. And that's why, you know, I'll often call people up before the show. Hey, what's going on? I'm Levy. I know we haven't met. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your story? You know, even if I have tried the wines, even if I've seen them across the room before. Because if there's no relationship between the two people, it may as well be in text. Because that's what it's going to feel like. And I can tell you that certain interviews are really popular. And I, I think that they're really popular because what people are really responding to is that these two people seem to vibe well. And that's, that's I think, half of it. The actual content is something else. you know. So when you call to prep them, do they know questions in advance? No, nobody knows the questions in advance. Um, I, I, I'd like to get genuine reactions from people. And maybe that's um, maybe that's a fault. Maybe maybe people would give more in-depth answers if they did know the questions in advance. But I think you lose the genuine. And I wanted a real response from people, not an edited, copyrighted. Um, you know, um, like I didn't want the uh, group. Uh, what's that called? I don't know. I didn't want. Um, like they do, I don't know. I don't even know. I didn't want like workshop answers, you know. Like, oh, you know, what would be the great answer to 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 answer? I wanted a person actually answering a question. Yeah, I think a lot of really amazing connections come out of that process. And Abe uh, brings up, I think, if you want to psychoanalyze me for a second, one of my favorite interviews is with uh, Serge uh, Oshar. Um, and so Abe has a question. What is the particular relation between wine and talk? 
So he thinks of Serge uh, Oshar, but also a dozen or so people that have re uh, revealed a deep and articulate uh, way of speaking easily, deeply about wine. For you, why is wine such a good thing to talk about? And why does wine inspire so much talk? I think that that's true. I think that a lot of people, though, if it were in their native language, I think that would happen more often. But then, of course, you have a problem keeping the same audience because they may not speak Italian. Um, I think it is true that people who make really interesting wines, they're really interesting people. They have interesting things to say. It's almost never true the other way. At least the kind of wines I like. I think I sometimes I like the exceptions, you know. Sometimes people are like, hey, why didn't you stay in with the Master Sommelier program or something like that? And that's, and the reason for that really is very clear for me, which is they were teaching about the benchmarks and I was interested in the exceptions. They were teaching about what was typical from the region and I wanted to know about that one dude that was doing something different. And so maybe those people are really interesting people. I don't know. But I do think that it's true that if it's coming through in the bottle, there's a reason. And it, it and you can almost pick it through the wine. That they have interesting things to say. They they made strong choices. And there's a reason that they did that. There's a reason Clements Bush doesn't use pesticides. It's because one day the government came to him and said, Yeah, so we're gonna ration water for you because um the drinking water in the water table is not safe uh because of the runoff of pesticides from the vineyard. So you know, here's your allotment of of drinking water. And he thought, well, this is crazy. Why are we doing it this way? Why are we poisoning ourselves? Why am I going to get cancer? And he decided not to do that. And those are very strong choices. They don't come from nowhere. And when you start talking about it, it turns out that people have a lot of strong belief. And some people are more articulate about their belief and some people are less articulate. But strength of belief causes so much to happen, whether it's a blunt force of strength or uh, a desire even not to talk. Like I think Andrea Kalik being an example of someone who is not articulate, but has a lot of strength of belief. And one of his beliefs is, I don't really want to talk to you. You know, that's part of his charm almost, you know, I mean, some people really don't like that interview. I like it because he's actually being exactly him. You know, I don't know. I mean, yes, I think that you, you it can turn out that you're more articulate. I think sometimes when people ask that question, what they're really saying is, are you drawn more to the person than the wines? And I think that's bullshit because I definitely am drawn more to the wines than the, than the people. I mean, yeah, I think sometimes there's a sense that somebody can be really compelling and you get that right away, I think, on the interviews, whether or not they give a great interview, whether or not they're articulate and whether or not they really go into, you know, 30-minute uh, answers to each question you can still get a sense that so many people in the wine world are just insanely compelling, you know, from the moment they start speaking. Um, Serge is one of those. Abe is one of those to me. Um, and it's amazing to me just how many there are on the podcast. And I think a lot of them I've been really surprised by. Are there people that you've interviewed that you've been especially compelled by in that sense that maybe you weren't expecting to be, or maybe you were? Well, I would say that wine, I think, is an oceanic experience. By which I mean, wine is one of those things where you realize there's a lot more to the universe than you, you know? So that same sense you have when you're in like the sea or the ocean and you realize how vast 
the universe is that you're floating in. I think wine can make you do that through taste. And you realize that there are all, all of these possibles that have come together in this. And it's a lot more than I can even comprehend as to why and to what's even happening. And it's one of those transcendental experiences that you can have. It's a sublime experience. And I don't even really mean like that one wine. I mean like a lot of wines can do that. So <clears throat> I think once you start to touch on that, you become a more interesting person. This is my thought. You know, once you start to th to see the immensity of what's what is, then you, even just the process of you making that realization makes you a more interesting person. I think. It's easy not to have that other that I think it's easy in other beverages not to have that realization. There are so many beverages that are made to be easily understood and simple. Wine is not one of them and that's why I I stood by wine. You know, there's a lot that's changed with wine in the culture in the period of time that I've been working with it in terms of expense, rarity, you know, availability of things. A lot of that has changed, but I stayed with wine, not because I'm some weird snob or because I don't know of something else to do. It's because it's the beverage where I get that kind of experience, and I don't know a lot of other beverages that do that. I'd say tea and cheese you know, can do that for you. But a lot of other things are just not that complex, really. Yeah, I think that's the amazing part of it is how compelling those people are that have been so compelled by wine that they get into wine after being like just having that naturally compelling thing, being like the leaders in their field and like people that you hear and you know, like immediately they could do whatever they wanted and like be the best, you know, nuclear physicists, nuclear physicists, marathon runners, musicians, things like that. People that are drawn back into the wine fold. Yeah. I mean, I think so if compelling. you look at Rulo, here's a guy that, not only could be a great actor, actually is a great actor and has been in many films, could have done that. I think a lot of times what you find is wine is a choice. Even at people who have inherited it from their family, they chose to do that. You know, Katerina Prum went back. Rulo went back. If you choose, there's a reason, and it usually ends up being better wine. What do you expect from the guest beyond just showing up? What do you hope they bring to the, the interview? I really want them to have already started the process of thinking what was important to them. So, you know, and I, the, the disaster is when someone comes in and doesn't want to explain much like, Hey, how was the 2003 vintage? And they're like, it was good. And they just leave it at that. Or they just want to be a salesperson. Like, yep, everything we've done is great. Really happy with everything. We're amazing. You know? So, you know, you just don't want that to happen. Uh, that's all. Because that's not what we're about here. You know what I mean? So on the flip side of that, you know, what you expect from guests, I imagine there are times when you, you know, I imagine you're pretty hard on yourself and wish you had been a better showrunner. Jeff uh, Kellogg has a question on that note. And he asks, have you ever lost the tape of an interview? Yeah, well, we lost the Jancis one. The first one with Jancis, which was an incredible interview. And yeah, it failed to record. So we got five minutes of tape and then the rest of it's gonzo. The ones where, you know, she talks about her son, the ones where she talks about the old days with her husband at the restaurant that they used to do, the one where she talks about Rodenstock and fraud and how that relates to what's going on in China. It was an incredible interview. She's super sharp. We'll never get that interview again because I think that she didn't expect the questions to come the way that they did. 
So when she came back and we did an interview, also a strong interview, she knew it was going to be a strong interview coming in. That changed her perception. I don't think she thought much of the show. I don't think she's often asked really in-depth questions. And she responded in a way that a strong personality who's super intelligent would respond, which is, oh, okay, well, if you're going to ask me those questions, then I'm going to give you the answer. And she killed it. And unfortunately, I lost that interview. And that's my fault. You know, and that was incredibly embarrassing for me to to write her that letter. So maybe that plays into uh, Raj Vedia's uh, question: If you could do over one episode, be it for content, i.e., you wanted to ask different questions or cover different topics that ended up being recorded, or for depth of topic, i.e., you wanted to talk more about something that was covered in your opinion too briefly, what would that be? Well, I mean, I never would have let Serge leave. You know. You don't expect someone who's in your living room to be dead a month later or two months later. You know, he was a couple of feet away from me. And that was the part that, that hit the hardest for me uh, when I heard about his death because I was sitting a few feet from where I had just been talking to him. He had just been in my house, you know, and that was, that was hard. That was, that, that was still hard. I don't understand why he's not around anymore. Right. Um, you know, I think in terms of, in terms of that, I think I give people so much space that I don't know how much I can say, Oh, I'd love to have that over again because I feel like most of the time that's how they answered it. And I don't know, I don't know if that's on me, you know what I mean? Um, but I do think that there are times where I've missed interviews that are now impossible to get. I mean, and Claude Lefleur, I asked her three times to be on the show. You know, we're never going to get that interview. It's really too bad because this is somebody who was a pioneer for biodynamics, who had so much to say about it, who was an inspiration for so many other people in the region. That would have been an amazing legacy to have recorded, you know, but that's not going to happen. So Pascaline Lapeltier asks, um, used to curate wine lists. Now, as I see it, you're curating a radio show. Do you see it this way? And now that you have more recognition, you most likely have more authority to choose your guests. What's that evolution been like? I mean, I think we were lucky from the beginning in that virtually everyone that we asked to be on the show has been on the show eventually. There was a couple people that it took a while, but there have been very few times where I've ever asked and they've said no. I mean, like less than six. And we've done 250 some odd, you know, almost getting close to 300 interviews. So I think in terms of, of the show getting more popular and people coming, I don't know that that's true. I mean, I think we always were lucky with that. I think that um, even from the beginning, you know, I mean, Eric Asimov was here. I think it was episode, you know, it was one of the first 10, you know, and, uh, in terms of big names or, or whatever. I think the show um, always was given that level of respect. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there, a lot of times the only thing that's really keeping certain interviews from happening is just time and place, you know. If I were somewhere else and, and you know, certain people aren't traveling anymore or don't spend a lot of time in New York and it's hard to get those interviews, but 
there's been very few people who have said no. I think in general, if you approach people with a genuine interest in their life, I think most people respond well to that. Do you ever get anybody say just, it's not my gig? Like, you know, in the Psalm world, especially I can think of a lot of people and looking at the videos even to like go way back, you know, not everybody's good on camera or wants to be on camera, you know, and I think something different happens maybe once the tape starts rolling. Do you ever get somebody who says, I'm just, I can't do it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he would mind that I say it because it's something that's we've talked about a lot subsequently and we've always been strong friends before and after. But, you know, Francesco Grosso, that happened and he wasn't comfortable with doing the recording and we didn't do the rest of the recording. And it's I, it's just a symptom of, it, it's just a faucet of who he is and how he sees himself. There's no other reason we couldn't do the recording. It's just how he likes to position himself in the world, which is you know, a great way to be a helpful servant type person. It's a great hospitality attitude. He doesn't want to put himself in the front. He's an amazing person. It's one of my favorite people in the whole wine business. He doesn't want to do the show. It's fine. You know? So maybe going back to the coach point and, you know, your process there as an interviewer, uh, Thomas Pastujak asks, has it been easier to interview sommeliers rather than winemakers because of your background or perhaps the opposite? No, I'd say it's the opposite. I don't know if it's my background or not, but I think it's harder to get a sommelier to really stand for something. Um, I think a lot of times they don't want to. Um, and I don't know that a lot of them have even thought that through. It's just what ends up happening. So that, that's too bad for me. I, I, I didn't necessarily see it happening that way. But that that does tend to happen. So, but you know, um, the truth is that there's a ton of interest in in sommeliers as a subject, and I think a lot of people want to know how they got that job, and that's something that pe most people are totally open to talking about. You know, so uh, sometimes I think maybe the sommelier interviews hit that topic up, like how'd you end up there? You know, that kind of thing, because that's actually genuinely interesting to a lot of the younger people who are coming up. Zev Rovan asks, is there a white whale guest that you'd like to get? Or did Aubert sort of ruin it for everybody? No. I mean, Aubert was the most open to doing the interview. Uh, we sat down the first time that I ever seriously talked with him. And the first question he asked is, what can I do for you? So, I mean, Aubert was not in any way difficult. He was the nicest. I mean, he came in and recorded with a broken hand. So, a lot of people would have just been like, nope. I have a broken hand. I'm not, you know, I'm staying at home and putting this on ice. Um, so, no, I mean, Aubert couldn't, I mean, one of the reasons Aubert is such an incredible leader is because of that. Because he doesn't put up all the barriers that you'd think he would. You know, I think probably the people who work for him really understand that he, he cares about them. Because he cares about, every, you know, he cares about Levy the interviewer, you know. And that's apparent right away. So, Aubert is not, that was not what I think people build it up to be in terms of hard to get. And you don't see me bragging about it being hard to get. I'm not out there being like, oh, I can't believe, you know. Um, hard to get? Robert Chatterton is hard to get. That would be difficult. I would love to see that interview, you know. He talked to a lot of people over the phone all those years. You know, it's the same thing, talking to a microphone. But uh, so far, he hasn't uh, he hasn't come by. So, I I would like to get that. 
I think Michael Broadbent would be very interesting. I think I don't see a lot of interviews with him. Uh, so that may be a personal choice of his. <clears throat> and I think Hugh Johnson is an incredible conversationalist. And I think there's a level where I'm just not based in London and I just don't see him that often. But there, there are a lot. Of, I mean, do I, when you asked me before, do I, do I see an end point for the show? I mean, I, I could say another hundred names that I think, well, it'd be lovely to get that guy on and, or a girl. I mean, tons of girls too. And it's just a matter of, you know, having the time to do it and having them in the place. So those are some seriously big names and you've had some serious clout in terms of names on the show, but you also seem like there's a real drive about you and the show to really give a platform to the underdog. And you mentioned in the Abe interview, even, you know, a lot of what you do is about the underdog and pulling for the underdog. So you, I think often given a platform to, you know, relatively unknown, uh, beverage professionals, um, What's the foundation for that? Well, you can see when someone's going to do interesting things. And why not interview them earlier and get their message out there if that's going to happen? Why not make that easier for them? I mean, there are definitely moments when you're like, this is going to happen. You know? When, I mean, I knew Patrick Capiello years ago, and he was, to his great credit, he worked as the helper for people who had big uh, public profiles for all those years, you know, and it's only recently that he's developed a, a public persona uh, at the highest level, really. But I always knew that this was going to be somebody great, whether he was recognized publicly or not. I mean, you just knew this was a special dude. When you have that sense, I mean, you're almost less of a person if you don't help them through their process, you know? And also get the impression that how nice somebody is plays into your choice on, on picking an interview. Is that true? And where's that come from? If so, I mean, who wants to spend time with dickheads, you know, who wants to like really get into the life of someone that's a jerk, you know, like why, why do that? You know, the closer you are to jerks, the more you become a jerk. So if, if it's a choice between someone who's nice and someone who's equally capable who's not nice, I mean, to me, that's not even a choice. Plus, the the real truth is that people aren't nice. They just don't last in the business. So, you're one of the nicest guys. Rajat Parr says that you've gone so deep into the subject, deeper than anyone he knows. How do you bring out the true and honest stories? How do you do it? You just try to keep people real, you know? that moment where they start um, blowing up the balloon a little bit, you just try to bring it down a little bit, you know, or just be specific. What do you mean by that? You know, I think there's a, I think wine is a complex topic and it's easy to rely on verbal crutches that don't really mean a lot that sound good at the, at the moment. And it's especially amazing when you've been around wine for a while, because what those verbal crutches are totally change. You know, whereas at before it was like, oh, this is, this is, you know, modern and with it. Now it's like, oh, this is traditional and we've never changed a thing, you know, and, you know, but neither one really means anything. So tell me what it means that you're traditional, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean that that was a good vintage? What does it mean that was a good vintage? You know, in Santorini, a good vintage is a cool vintage that wasn't that hot and they had plenty of time to harvest because their, their challenge is maintaining acidity. 
And, you know, in Germany, maybe a good vintage is, you know, in the Franken, maybe, oh, wow, it's nice to have a little heat, you know? So what does it mean? Does it, does it mean the rain didn't come? Does it mean there was less heat, more heat? Botrytis, no botrytis, what's a good vintage? I've talked to multiple winemakers where botrytis is part of their style. They'll make dry wines, you know, Groner, you know, uh, several people in Austria. If you're not getting botrytis, does that mean you can really make the wine you want to make? You know, that kind of question, you know. So Isabella Odero says, I'd love to know what your main objective is, the principle you care about most when managing the show and the interviews, and what makes you happiest about the show. I am really positive that if this show had been around when I first started in wine, it would have helped me a lot. And I'm just trying to give the leg up to the people who are in that same spot now. There, there's a way that you can be famous and not known in this industry. And I think it's better for everyone if you show who you are. And that way, the right people will come to work with you. The people that are going to click with that. And the people who aren't can go do something else. That's to talk about it on the sommelier level. Then there's a sense that on these whirlwind tours that the winemakers take where they're at your restaurant for a half hour and then you don't see them again for two years. I don't know if that's really a relationship where you're like, oh, I know such and such winemaker from wherever, you know, I don't know if that's really true. And there's an aspect of this show that's privileged time. You're getting to spend an hour with Jeremy Sace, who's super articulate. That's part of the part of the wonderfulness of the show. This is special time that you're getting to spend with these people that you don't see every day, who are doing interesting things. And I think when people hold it against the show that it's too long, I'm like, what are you talking about? How many times do you get a chance to hear from Jean-Marc Rouleau? How many times are you hanging with Fourier? I mean, how many times? You know, like, yeah, let me listen again, you know. I especially love that question coming from a winemaker because I think it's kind of the inverse of the what's your house style question that might be, you know, translated to a winemaker from an interviewer. On the flip side of that, Ariano Capinti asks, you know, knowing that you taste so much wine, know so much about wine, if you are making wine, what does that wine look like? You know, so that was interesting because on the day of the Napa earthquake, right? So Napa earthquake happens in the morning. I was staying at Tegan Pascal Equa's house and we were going to go out and do a pick. And so that really threw things into chaos on a lot of different fronts. Um, but we go out and do the pick anyway, because when the grapes are ready to be harvested, they're ready to be harvested. Right. Uh, so we drive out to Loomis and on the way he says to me, you know, if you were making wine in California, what kind of wine would you make? And I, I said, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I think if I were making wine in California, what I would try to do would be to make, make a world-class rosé wine, like a Chateau Simone or uh, a Valentini, that kind of a Lopez rosé, because that's what I'd want to drink in California. That's what I think would go so well with so much of the food of California, so much grilled food and barbecue outdoor you know i mean grilled food outdoors and i don't see that there uh, you know i see rosés that are uh, bleated rosés to make red wines bigger or i see lighter rosés but i don't see serious rosé like a, a world-class serious savory rosé 
And so we picked the Grenache fruit and then he made it into a rosé. <laughs> and so that's the closest I've ever come to answering that question um, is, is that. I think that if I were making a wine, maybe I'm not so original. Maybe I would want one of those really special terroirs just like everybody else, you know. Um, there is something in the earth, there's something in the ground in those places that there's a reason that those wines taste the way that they do. I am surprised though, when you come across certain wines and you're like, wow, what's going on here? And then you do get that soil analysis and you're like, Oh, look at that. Lots of limestone, you know? So there are definitely a lot of places like that too, like Abruzzo, you know, where Pepe is, you know, Oh wow. It's clay and limestone. And above that, there's some sand. That sounds like a pretty good combo to me, you know? Um, there's a reason that, that wines are long lived. And sometimes that has to do with not just the sun. It has to do with what they're grown in, you know, and the age of the vines too, but what they're grown in, I think is often overlooked cause it's more difficult to see. Uh, um, I thought one thing that I think about a lot was when Frank Cornelison was here and he said that he almost went to Piemonte, but it was a monoculture. And so he went to Etna where he was alone. And of course he's not alone anymore, but that was really interesting to me. I think about that a lot. Like, you know, I really like the wines of uh, Ronca de Shiala. And one of the things you learn when you talk to them is that they're the only people making wine in that whole valley. And uh, they're surrounded by forests. And these forests are actually really interesting because they, they bridge whole continents. Like, they're really vast forests. And uh, it's, it's a different thing, I think, when you're by yourself than when you're all in uh, a huge amount of vines you know, a sea of vines. I think uh, it's different for disease pressure. It's different for the kind of pests you get. It's different It's different in the end for the kind of wine you can make. Um, and it's great when you drive into that valley and it's all vines coming from a, a wine lover's point of view. It's an amazing sight, but I wonder if it's really the best thing for the actual wine. I don't know. So I don't know about you, but I take Ariana's question as like an invitation for an apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, of all the people in the world, that's one of the the few that I've been like, oh, let's pull up stakes and go, you know, and I haven't done it yet, but that's definitely a very appealing idea. It seems like Sicily in general is um, a special place. So uh, Chala's neighbor, Mitya Cirque, asks, what's next for the future of the podcast? Is there anything you want to focus on more? Um, I mean, I think the thing is to just keep doing it. I... Um, I feel like sometimes, again, people who don't listen to the show are like, so what's new? And you're like, I don't know, some new episodes are new. Like, you know, I'm just happy that we keep getting it out there. I think it's been um, an expanding circle and I've made some, some like life friends. And I think Meaty is one of those where we're friends now, you know, and I don't think we would have been if it hadn't been for the show. You know, we would have been people who said hi now and again, acquaintances, you know, respectful acquaintances. Like, yeah, I respect what that guy's doing. I love that restaurant that he works at. Um, now, I think we have something beyond that. I, I really treasure that about the show. So, Joe Salamone asked a question that was, I think, really empathetic and showed a lot of sensibility towards you as a person and kind of your involvement with the show. Then he deleted that one. And then, yeah. that the one you're about to ask. Um, so I was thinking of a way to, to 
read it. And I think I'm just going to read it, you know, as he presented it rather than tweak it or make it, you know, first person or second person. Um, so Joe says, the success of the podcast is pretty amazing. I remember when Levy started in the basement of Barbalude with just New York wine personalities, and it was impossible then to imagine that Aubert de Villene would be on the show. I really think the podcast has had a huge impact on Levy's life beyond the notoriety that it's brought him. And listening from the early episodes to the recent ones, it's clear that his skills as an interviewer have improved. When I listen to the early interviews, people either seem less forthcoming or the conversation seems to get away from Levy. So what has Levy learned about making people feel at ease and knowing how to guide the conversation, but also how has that changed his interactions outside of the show? Yeah, looking people in the eye has changed a lot. It's changed a lot, the kind of interview that I get, and then it's also changed like just life. I was a classic eye avoider, I think, for a long time, and I think it makes people uncomfortable. I don't know why. I can't tell you why I was like that. Um, I think what fundamentally changed is that I became more okay to say, this is who I am, and now I'm going to ask you who you are. And I, I think I was a little bit more of a hidden personality before that, which I probably goes back to what I've said a couple times about sommiers. I don't know that sommiers are always rewarded for showing who they are as a personality. I think it's almost like something you have to work up to as a sommier. Um, because I think there's a lot of financial pressure to be um, reaffirming of someone's choice as opposed to saying, you know, without being that classic stereotypical dick sommier but you know hey this is what i really believe in i don't know that people are always asking for that from the sommier a lot of times what they really want from the sommier is for them to say great choice so i don't know maybe it's maybe being a sommier doesn't encourage you to necessarily show who you are much you know maybe the people who do that as sommiers really can't help it you know and so you mentioned you're a better listener as a result of the show. And I mentioned empathy. So how does that empathy spread into the rest of your life outside of just being on tape? I don't know. I'm much more relaxed though. Um, and I, I think I'm much more willing to think about like, why does someone think that, you know, but I don't know. It feels like when you want something good from other people, like when you want a good result for them, it feels like that somehow radiates back. That's what it feels like to me. So I think if you go out in the intention of like, yeah, I want this to be good for you. I feel like just the effort of wanting that, whether it's always successful or not, puts you in a different framework of, of just mental state. And I think that, it, I don't know, it's worked out. Like I'm pretty okay with it. I'm, I like this feeling. So you told me once that you kind of keep the heavier hitting questions to the last 10% of the interview. I don't know if you said it outright, but I imagine it's so that it's okay if they slam down their headphones and storm out the door. You still have something, you still have 90%. So I have a question from Michael Madrigal. We all know that upon arriving at the apartment to record, we're told to remove our shoes. I'm interested in whose sock game you're most impressed with. And also on the flip side, who came wearing mismatched socks and had holes in their socks <laughs> i don't remember any holes in the socks um i've seen a lot of impressive sock game i think anytime you're dealing with europeans you're definitely gonna 
see some colorful some colorful choices. Germans also as well. The British rock the colorful socks. Um, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't recall mismatched socks. I think the one that I was most impressed with is that. I mean, not to make too big of a deal about it, but Aubert de Villene had a broken hand and he still took off his shoes. And I was like, how respectful is this guy? Because I think I probably would have been like, no, that's okay. You know, you have a broken hand. You don't have to undo the laces. And he did it anyway. I don't know. There's something to be, you know, there's something real, real about that. Levy Dalton. He's watching people's sock game. He's also got 300 episodes of an immensely successful show under his belt, fast becoming a, a larger public wine figure, yet he's still happiest when he's hanging out in his living room talking to his friends about wine. Thanks, Levy. Thank you, Steve Willie. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe, on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.